oh, well, if there's a bomb, I'll just jump out of the way or something. I didn't feel brave at the time, but it feels it looking back. You know, I got enough partying in and I got enough work in. <laughs> You'll need to make it a competitive advantage that your people use it better than every, everyone else's people. Wow. It's a lot to unpack there, sorry. You've kind of blown up my brain a little bit. Today on the File Notes podcast, we are joined by Sam Nicholas, the CEO of Gilbert & Tobin, one of Australia's largest and most innovative law firms. Nine years ago, after an awesome career outside of law, Sam returned to the legal industry to help lead the firm and cultivate an innovative culture that stands out in the profession today. Our conversation covers a lot of topics, but dives deep into something I'm super passionate about, how AI and legal tech will shape the future of the legal field and how firms should be developing today to maintain an edge. Sam, I'm so excited for this. I've heard great things from your colleagues. Uh, it's good to see you again. Thanks for coming on. Hi, Luke. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So I'm from Christchurch. You're from Adelaide. They're sister cities that share a really similar design. Um, and I, I understand you spent some time growing up in both cities. What was it like for you? Oh, I did. I, I, I was born in Adelaide and I spent my first few years of life there. And then I uh, did have a little stint in, in New Zealand in Christchurch um, between the ages of about eight and ten. So uh, I guess pretty formative years in my education. Uh, it was a. I had a good time uh, growing up in both um, Adelaide and Christchurch. I had a um, pretty good uh, family life, and they were great cities to uh, be a kid in. Lots of uh, easy to get around, play sport, and good quality education that I got. So uh, yeah, they were really really nice places to be. Um, obviously, I, I left Adelaide um, after I finished uni, and I, I haven't lived there since. But my, my I've got close connections with family, and I go there a lot. Um, Unfortunately, I've only been back to Christchurch once. I'd love to get back again soon. Yeah, it's changed a lot uh, in recent years since the earthquakes. So um, it's, it's definitely an interesting city to check out. Did you move around anywhere else growing up? Yeah, so I did an exchange. I was an exchange student just after uh, high school. I was, I was only about 16 or so when I finished uh, my year 12. And I did a, a year as an exchange student in Sri Lanka um, as an AFS student. So uh, that was a... That was very different again. I, uh, I lived with a, a Sri Lankan family, went to school there, um, and uh, you know I had a really interesting year. Um, at the time, it was there was still quite a quite a bit of civil war going on in Sri Lanka. I'm not quite sure how I managed to get myself sent there or how my parents let me. Um, I think they regretted it every day. They were very worried about me, but uh, um, you know it was a great experience. I got to learn a little bit of the local language. I can still say a few words in Sinhala and. Uh, um, you know, came back sort of quite different from that experience, um, and then then came back to Adelaide to do my um, my uni. Yeah, what what stood out to you from like you know obviously Sri Lanka is like very different culturally to New Zealand and Australia, and um, you know U US has its differences to I guess our you know South Pacific cultures, but um, what what you know how what was that like? Yeah, look, I think I think the thing that really stood out for me in Sri Lanka was just, I guess, very very strong kind of family relationships and uh, a lot of respect for elders. Uh, that sort of slightly different style, and and I guess um, you know a fairly strong religious bent that ran through the place, which um, is a little different from my own uh, kind of way of thinking. But it was interesting to experience it and see how see 
that kind of uh, devotion to religion through other people's eyes. Yeah, moving to Sri Lanka for a period um, at a very young age, you know, coming from Australia would take a lot of almost, I guess, bravery or uh, confidence. Yeah, I suppose I suppose what I'd call it would be the bravery and confidence of a 17-year-old who <laughs> probably thinks, oh, well, if there's a bomb, I'll just jump out of the way or something. Um, yeah. You're so young, you sort of haven't, haven't fully developed the... Uh, the risk assessment that you get as you're a bit older. So you sort of, yeah, it sort of doesn't feel, feel, didn't feel brave at the time, but feels it looking back and, and, you know, remembering in those days, um, this is pre-internet, pre-email, pre-easy phoning. Like, uh, I wrote a letter home once a week, got one back roughly once a week and, uh, maybe had a short phone call with mum and dad every month or so, um, because it was so expensive. So, yeah, uh, you really are away. I think now, if you did something like that now, you'd never really be away because you'd be doing FaceTime calls and uh, in constant contact with everyone back home. But you really do cut the ties um, in that era, and you're on the road. Of course, yeah, that's a really um, interesting nuance that I suppose I hadn't thought about just when you were telling your story, um, because I've grown up with the internet. Yeah, digital natives listening will be like, they will not understand quite what it means. Mm. How do you think like the experience almost, you know, uh, for lack of a better phrase, like abandoning your family as a young kid and traveling overseas, how do you think that experience like, affected who you are today? Because obviously that sounds like something that would be pretty formative. Yeah, it is. I think... Um... Look, it makes you very independent, makes you think uh, about uh, kind of looking after yourself. You just sort of learn the basics of uh, life admin, I guess, if you call it that, and, um, and, and embrace that. Yeah. When you, were, um, when you were, you know, around that age, did you have like a job that you really wanted to do? You, know, you mentioned, you know, kids often want to be astronauts. I did, um, you know, uh, and was... You know, everyone, you know, has these ideas of like, oh, I'm going to be a politician or an architect or, you know, something like that. What, what was that for you? Oh, I think um, towards that back end of, um, you know, I guess you're thinking around that time of leaving high school and doing that time in Sri Lanka, I, I'd started to form on lawyer. Um, I think I'd really enjoyed um, arguing, really, being annoying to my teachers with arguing, but um, language and the use of language and... And sort of justice, and I also was pretty interested in business as well. So it was kind of a business sort of side of law that I had in my mind. But I, um, I think I'd formed that view at that point that that's what I wanted to do. Um, the way things worked at uh, Adelaide University at the time is you couldn't you couldn't apply for a, into law straight from school. You had to apply into another course, and then after the first year, um, convert to law based on your grades in your first year at uni. So. That was my ambition, was to get into law, but um, my first um, degree in my entry into university was economics. So, um, yeah, I think by that point, that's what I was thinking, you know, what seeing lawyers on TV and things like that. Um, we didn't have lawyers in our family, um, so I didn't have that kind of um, path, but I, you know, I think that's what I'd really landed on at that point. Yeah. Thinking back to that time, you, you were at uni, like, who were you? you really were you you know partying it sounds like you're a good student maybe you were you spending too much time in the library uh to to go out oh yeah no i was (laughs) i was pretty balanced student actually i i i guess in a way um 
you know, my dad said to me a little piece of advice when I started uni and, and I thought it was good advice. And uh, he said, kind of treat it like a job. Like um, others from school will have a job at this point. Just treat it like a job pretty much during business hours, do uni. Um, and then the rest of your time's to you to yourself. And um, that's kind of how I treated it. Just kind of got in there in the sort of nine to four, nine to five kind of time frame. Did my lectures, did my shoots, did some time in the library preparing. And from that point onwards, I could really, you know, like someone that's working, when you knock off, you uh, had your time to yourself. And for me, that was um, playing football, being the university football team, uh, around the university football club, going out. I had a girlfriend at the time, so we spent a lot of time together. So I think um, I think I had a pretty good balanced time during my student life. And, you know, I got enough partying in and I got enough work in. <laughs> That sounds good. Um, so today, young students um, run into a lot of challenges around you know, new technology, uh, distraction. They have all of these things that they have to overcome. What were the challenges that you were running into um, when you were studying? Maybe when I compare it with that, there was, uh, you know, in some ways, uh, less information or less technology. Um, you know, the the way you did legal research um, or, or research in any field was was very analog. You know, you're looking through um, uh, reference books, looking for references to cases. You're going to the physical hard copies in libraries that might be checked out to someone else. Uh, then you sort of track back through the references to find another book. And there's a few indices that you can look up. But it wasn't really until late in my time at uni when um, the digital age really started and there were tools like I think the university had a, a terminal for, for LexisNexis to look up stuff. But other than that, you know, until that point, you were, it was a very analog world. So I guess, you know, compared to the, the technology overload that the students have these days, um, where I think the skill is about sifting, sifting through so much to get what's relevant, we were really on a bit of a treasure hunt of, um, of analog searching to, to find the things that, that we needed to know. Um, or we relied on you know, I guess to some extent we relied on the, the professors and others sort of pointing out or textbooks pointing us in the right direction. But we had to do a lot of that, that for ourselves. And I think it teaches you quite a bit about um, the base of where you're getting your information from because you're actually quite viscerally in it yourself. Yeah, definitely. That's a really interesting change that's been really, uh, in my view, significant for just the world really. Um, you know, when I was growing up, if I had a question, like I could have it answered immediately. So I was talking about this with some um, practice managers recently uh, that, you know, we're thinking about managing the next generation of lawyers. And there's often this perception that young lawyers and young people in general have um, this, you know, expectation for like an immediate answer. And, and when they have questions about their career, professional development, their role, um, they want their managers to, you know, come and answer those questions really quickly. And um, some people have, um, you know, maybe put that down a little bit to just um, a sense of entitlement. But I think it's potentially more, more, my view is that it's probably more related to just like, you know, whenever you, if you're growing up, whenever you have a question, you can search and Google the answer and um, it comes to you like instantly. Yeah, look, I think that's a really interesting point you're making that it's not about entitlement, but just about uh, kind of the environment of, of, of having so much instantaneous information. I guess what you, again, and I guess most of the listeners might be uh, 
from a younger age where they've been where they've had that experience. I mean, you know, but before you kind of had the internet in your pocket at all times, we would have long arguments about things, which the solution lay somewhere in the world, and whether that was discussions around points of law in an academic setting, or you can imagine with a group of mates arguing over some sort of sporting statistic. Um, these days, someone whips it out of their pocket and there's the answer and the, the debate's over. We used to have sort of long discussions on these things. And I, I guess some of those discussions, whilst you sort of think back sort of annoying at some level, are also really uh, helpful mm-hmm. because um, you're sort of passing data, you're, you're, you're thinking through arguments, you're trying to put your case, you're kind of doing a lot of recall. So it's just a different... Neither one's better or worse. They're just different, and they're just how how things have evolved. And and uh, now that everybody has the facts at their hands, um, being the best recall of facts is no longer distinctive. Yeah, it's the ability to put the facts together to to create patterns, to make an argument, and and to have empathy with the other person's argument so that you can deal with it. That those are the skills that then come to the fore a lot more. Yeah, I'd say um, I think those skills are definitely still being practiced in long arguments regardless of the facts yeah. so um yeah, yeah yeah i think uh i think that makes uh, you know that's really important so you started studying at adelaide five years later you were the you were a Rhodes scholar studying law at oxford university like how did you end up there what was that journey like yeah so um you know, I got uh, encouraged along the way to um, sort of think of ambitions beyond where I was and, and do do different things. And, uh, you know, I'd done well at uni. My dad in particular had been very encouraging of me and pushed me quite hard to have a look at doing the Rhodes Scholarship and, and studying overseas. I had a job lined up in Adelaide and I would have, um, I was sort of going down that track of being a lawyer there uh, and starting my legal career straight away. But um, some of the professors at uni and, and my father, as I mentioned, sort of said I should take a look at that and, and put myself forward. So I was lucky enough to win that um, through the, you know, through the process. Uh, and that set me up for, for going to Oxford for a couple of years, which was you know, an incredible experience and something that I am so glad that I did and has given me so many opportunities, but also um, I learned so much from um, it was a very different environment from doing uni in Australia. You spend a lot of time with everyone in your own course. So that's your economics or your law group. You're with them all the time and you don't live on campus. And But you sort of go there and you're immersed in the campus and it's so diverse, the, the people that you're with. The um, Particularly at the graduate level, there's people from all around the world. There's people doing very different courses. I had, you know, my, my housemates in... Uh, accommodation I was in was an American guy from Stanford doing international relations and then um, a Romanian woman. Uh, we had all sorts of different people and it was sort of diversity of background and nationality is one thing, but diversity of what they were studying was, was the thing that was really interesting to me. So you're just having conversations about someone doing something that you hardly understand, but you're pretty interested in like some sort of physics and the like. So that was, that was a great experience. Um, and on the legal side, it was very daunting at first. The sort of quality of what was expected of us, how articulate the students, particularly the ones from the UK and the US, were, and how much, how well they'd read the cases, how deeply they were in, in the detail, um, really threw me back. I thought, oh dear, I'm in the big league here, and I'm not sure how I'm going to go. So uh, it was uh, it was very confronting at first, but it was a great experience. Yeah. 
Interesting. Um, I uh, I also studied economics like you, and um, one time we had this like uh, for a semester we had this um, professor swap with um, Cambridge or Oxford, and I, I studied in Christchurch at University of Canterbury, and the style of teaching there is very different to I suppose these um, UK and probably a lot of American universities. Um, you know, this lecturer came over and it was very like Socratic style mm. so you know yes. he'd you'd you'd have this reading that you had to do prior to the lecture and when you showed up it was about debating and discussing the the readings you know um my experience until then was really um you do the learning and the lecture uh for the most part yeah. and you know maybe you practice it outside of the lecture and so that was really different um learning environment for me what was was that was that quite you know similar or, or you know did you had you been learning you know through this kind of Socratic style at Adelaide oh, as well? no no I think you're much the same as yours I think the, the Australian New Zealand system is quite similar I think um uh it was it, that was a big shock um you had to be you had to have done your work pre the 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 lecture or seminar um you get called on um and expected to have something to say and something to contribute to the discussion. Uh, and then there's another method that I have at Oxford as well, which um, the tutorial method, which is basically preparing an essay and then turning up to the professor's lodgings effectively. Normally was one, one or two students and um, having to read your essay out, um, out loud to the professor uh, and the other student and then have them critique it and discuss it. Um, that was pretty, uh, pretty daunting, I've got to say. Um, I, rem I remember turning up to one of them having played a game of rugby beforehand for the college. Um, and I think I must have got, I think I must have got concussed or hit pretty hard at some point in the rugby game. I turned up to this thing and I was in, I was in enormous trouble, really. I don't think I could follow anything. Um, and I got a, a stern talking to about the fact that I'm not supposed to be playing sport and I'm supposed to be focusing on the law of evidence. So uh, um, that was uh, that was a pretty uh, interesting situation to be in. Hey, have you heard about G&T? Not the drink. Gilbert and Tobin is a leading independent Australian corporate law firm advising clients on their most significant corporate transactions, regulatory matters and disputes. If you're thinking about the next steps in your career, go to gtlaw.com.au slash careers. That's gtlaw.com.au slash careers to find out more. Interesting. So during your studies, you know, you were on, you're talking about you're on this track to become a lawyer. I understand you worked as like a paralegal during your studies. Um, you were set um, to become a lawyer, but you never practiced. What drew you away from practicing? Oh, look, I, I was, as I mentioned earlier, I did a dual degree with economics and law, and I was very interested in the business side of, um, of law. Um, and, you know, the, the whole area of law and economics quite fascinated me. Um, and so I, I did sort of have that, that business slant to it. And during my time in Oxford, I, um, I got, I heard about McKinsey as a consulting firm. I'd, I'd never heard of them in Adelaide. There's a regular trip, recruiting trip to there that the Australian office does. And I got to meet a few of the partners from, from McKinsey. And, uh, and I went and did, uh, put myself forward, uh, in their process and, um, got myself a job there. So, uh, instead of 
going to the law, I, um, I joined McKinsey and Company as a management consultant um, and a couple of my friends who were there at the same time did, did the same thing. What was, what was kind of interesting about the time in Oxford was there was a lot of careers fairs from various um, employers, whether they were investment banks, consultants, etc., that were really quite interesting over there in that they um, didn't see university as a vocational training. So, you know, banking firms weren't looking just to hire people out of finance or commerce. Um, they would be happy to take somebody studying the classics. They were looking for kind of raw talent that they could they could work with. Whereas I think it's a bit more vocational here. The the you know the economics and accounting or commerce students will go to the accounting firms, the lawyers to the law firms, etc. So there was quite a quite a different sort of world to it. So I, I, I took that job on. I, um, interesting, I had a graduate job lined up um, in Sydney with, with Mallison's, so Mallison Stephen Jakes, it was called at the time, and I, I decided to take the job at, at McKinsey, and I had to call the partner from, from there and, and tell them, that I'm sorry, I won't be taking up my grad offer. And their react, the, the reaction of the partner that I called was incredibly um, supportive and generous in the sense of saying, well, I, I think that's a great idea. I think you'll learn a lot, I th- uh, you know, I'd do the same if I was you, you should, you should grab it. And, you know, if it doesn't work out, just give me a call and you can come here, which I thought was, was really good. And I guess I never made that call because I enjoyed my time at McKinsey. I ended up staying there for 10 years. You touched on the interesting difference between um, maybe approaches, you know, around uh, hiring vocationally where people have trained to do some, some work um, and, you know, so someone studies law and becomes a lawyer um, versus this approach where, you know, you're more so looking for evidence of um, skills, maybe ability to learn and things like that. Where do you sit when you're leading, you know, a large law firm today? How do you think about those differences when you're recruiting uh, great people? Yeah, so so obviously I'm recruiting more into the, the business of law than, um, than, than lawyers themselves sort of practicing fee earners. The, the, most of the recruiting I'm doing is... Um, except for the, the graduate and the Clark program, which I'll come to, is into that business of law area. And look, there's a bit of a mixture there. There's definitely advantages um, in, the, in the legal industry um, from having a bit of an understanding of, of how lawyers work and how professional services work. So in various roles, that is nice to see, but it's not a must-have for us. Um, I think in some cases, and we want to have a mix of it, having fresh thinking that comes in from outside the industry is also important. So, um, you know, I think, uh, I think it's a balance and I think it's sort of a portfolio across all of our roles. I, I like to have some of, you know, have enough of our people sort of have an understanding of legal from the day they walk in and others back them to work it out because, um, you know, it is a bit different from other businesses, but it's not so mysterious that you can't work it out if you've got kind of good basic capabilities in a functional area. That's kind of how we think about it at GNT. Yeah, yeah, yeah. definitely. Yeah. So I understand there are a lot of similarities working in consulting and big law. I've got a lot of friends who work, you know, in both of those areas. It can be long hours. It can be a lot of hard work. What yeah. was your experience at McKinsey in those first few years? Awesome. Well, I had a I had a terrific experience overall. Um, it's an incredible learning experience. You get to do very different things. The way it worked, it, certainly in those days for me in in the Australian practice of McKinsey, um, you need to be quite a generalist um, because you work across a lot of different functions. Whether you might do strategy projects or 
cost reduction projects, uh, operational effectiveness projects. So you do projects across the range and you might do multiple industries. And what I noticed in those early days is you'd go to training programs would be colleagues from big market like New York or London. And, you know, after six months there, I'm a telecommunications revenue optimization consultant. And it's like, oh, well, that's nice for you, but that would be like, I'd do one project every 10 years if I was in Australia. So um, you get a very broad uh, immersion in business and get to see it. Uh, lots of different businesses learn to learn businesses. Um, and, and that's an incredible experience. From the sort of working hard and lifestyle point of view, it is demanding and, and in consulting, the thing that's the biggest challenge is the travel. Um, and so in my first two, three years at um, McKinsey, I think I spent, you know, well over half my time in New Zealand and I flew back and forth probably 80 times in the first couple of years, I think, because I was going almost every week for a lot of, um, a lot of that time. So, you know, that's a lot of time away from your family. I, um, I was married, I didn't have kids at the time, but I spent a lot of time away from my wife and, and um, I think what we all found through that that was challenging, and I think everyone in the early stages of professional life finds challenging, is the uncertainty. Um, you can't make a commitment to anyone because, um, you know, they say, oh, would you like to go out to dinner or play indoor soccer in three weeks' time on a Tuesday? And you're like, I don't know. I'm not no, but I don't know because I don't know what country I'll be in. And so uncertainty's the challenge, I think, that um, a lot of our young lawyers face as well. It's like you want to be able to commit to something with your 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 partner or your family or your friends and um you know the work is work can be unpredictable um a, a very important client issue could come up at very late notice and that causes that uncertainty so you know i think um i think that's something about um you know professional life that that is challenging yeah i mean i can really relate to traveling a lot for work and it's of course it's like a massive privilege and you get to see the world and um, have all these like a, a diverse range of experiences, but when you're in a demanding job, it can be really hard to manage the, your workload while you're traveling. You know, it's kind of just compounding, especially when you know with the the different time zones. So it's definitely something that's that takes a lot of practice and um, and uh, prioritization as well. Yeah, and no, okay. we've had a few ref reflections on sort of generation and time, but I think there's definitely an age factor in it. I, there's things that I used to do back when I was in my sort of 20s um, with travel that, you know, back to back, fly in, go straight to work that, um, you know, you, now now at my age, I fly across to Perth. <laughs> it's hard work. So, so uh, you know, I'd say get a hell of a lot of that in while you're young. Yeah. We talked a little bit about key mentors uh, in your life. Um, you know, you, you mentioned your dad a couple of times. Uh who were the mentors that really helped, I guess, that you craft you at a young age and um, support you? And like, what what was the the value for you in those mentoring relationships? Oh, there's a there's a few key ones along the way. I think back to um, my time at university um, in Adelaide. Uh, there was a, a professor at. Uh, at the university in the commerce department, he taught first year accounting. He was also heavily involved in the in the university football club, which is a you know very uh, large. This place Australian rules football, um, large club with a lot of people in it. Um, and uh, 
he just recently died actually, um, called Fred Block, and he had a um, a great way of kind of bringing people along. He, um, I was he's an, he's an accounting student. I was playing for the club, and he sort of realised I was an accounting steward student, and uh, very early on uh, gave me responsibility as the club's treasurer. And um, you know that sort of it was kind of outside the academic field, but kind of linked to it and sort of the crossover between my, you know, my interest in sport and, and, uh, you know, my, my uni work, but it kind of gave me a real leadership opportunity inside a, inside an organization with, um, people older than me and, and just sort of his encouragement, uh, was very important to me and gave me lots of opportunities. And, um, you know, I think things like, uh, winning the road scholarship, um, you know, almost stem right back to that because, you know, my academic results would have been a huge part of that, but actually, um, things I'd done outside and, and involved with that, that group would have been really important to it. So kind of Fred's guidance and, and, and giving me opportunities along the way were, were really important to me. And then, you know, I think from there, um, you know, through various, uh, kind of roles I've played um, and I've had the benefit of quite a, you know, a, a range of people looking out for me and sort of putting me in the right direction and, and, um, and just kind of uh, lifting my aspiration and my ambition, I think. Um, I wouldn't say there were too many kind of um, individuals guiding me every step along the way. Just little points along the way. I, I remember a, a partner at... Um, McKinsey seeing me at a, a firm, like it was a firm retreat, big meeting of everyone and a partner from Melbourne who I didn't really know very well, just sort of ran into me and said, oh, oh I hear you, Sam, I hear you're doing well. And I like, I remember that to that day and I was like, oh, okay, that's great. So I, I wasn't really 100% sure where I stood and he was like, that was encouraging. And I think that this sort of person knew about me and kind of had something to say was, was, was encouraging. So, you know, it's not not too many major sort of figures along the way. It's just lo lots of different people having um, a little part to play. Yeah, it means a lot when, you know, you're, especially when you're, you know, in those for in that formative time when people take shots on you and, like, give you yep. those, like, opportunities where maybe you don't necessarily think you're ready or you do and you just haven't had the chance yet. Uh, and, you know, someone, I suppose, like, takes that risk. And, um, you know, if you, there's, you know, there's kind of a, a big pressure that comes with it often, you know, you don't want to let them down. Oh, I agree. I agree. And I, I think, um, now in the, in the role that I have and, and different roles along the way, when I've, I've been in a leadership role, um, I've benefited a lot from taking risks on some people and, um, I've really, I've really enjoyed kind of finding someone that's got a, um, got a lot of talent, but maybe is a bit hidden and mm. uh, seeing if we can take that a bit further and, and, and work with that. Um, and so, you know, that's, I think that's been something I've been, I've tried to do. And um, I, I think I've done pretty, I, I think I've benefited pretty well from that because I've had some great um, people um, do some amazing work with me that um, I'm, you know, that, that that's been a great benefit to me. So I, it really pays off if, if you take those shots, I think, as a leader. Yeah, I love that. That's, for me personally, that's one of the more rewarding parts of my role 
Karen said that one of your real strengths is the ability to identify that talent. When you're looking for great talent, what are those signals that you're looking for? And like practically, how do you assess for like the spark? Yeah, look, I think you're looking for um, curiosity and uh, a sort of delivery mindset. Um, people who want to get things done have sort of got a bias to action and the first getting the first step happening. I think that's the that's the thing you're you're looking for. What I guess I'll sort of see in it is somebody that's always kind of taking that extra, making something better than you would have thought of yourself, or um, just kind of adding value at, uh, beyond exactly what they're asked to do, and it's sort of challenging you and going further. And when you see that, see people with that sort of spark, and they've got that sort of they're thinking about the business themselves um, and they're acting like an owner and thinking, how do I make this better? When you see that, that's kind of what you lean into. Definitely. I couldn't agree more. I think, you know, when you give someone a task and they come back to, to you having, um, you know, just gone above and beyond, um, kicked it out of the park, really, and um, thought, you know, as you said, thought of things maybe um, that didn't come to mind for you. That's like such a green flag. Um and definitely gets me excited about someone's potential. So after 10 years at McKinsey, you spent time across banking, gaming, uh, and property, a pretty eclectic mix of industries, but you didn't spend too long in each. Um, could you share a bit on that journey and what you learned from those experiences? Oh, look, very different things. I mean, I guess it was a pivot away from being a consultant and an advisor to actually being a, um, you know, a line manager. I was initially at, at NAB, I was in a strategy team. So I guess it was a bit like being an internal consultant, but then I was looking after a P&L. And so you really do learn the, the doing of it um, and the thrill of kind of being accountable for end outcomes in a business. In, in consulting, you're accountable for delivering advice and, and making sure that advice is good. And, and you want to see your clients do it, but you're not really accountable for it. But you know, the thrill I got when I was first in a line role at, um, at NAB was, you know, the daily text with the results from the previous day on, I was in credit cards with, um, you know, how many new credit cards we'd sold or what the spend was. And so you really were then in the game of, of, of what was happening and delivery of, um, of outcomes for, for your business. And so I really, I, I think I took that, that was a real learning um, to understand that. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. So, and it's 2015, you spent 20 years out of the legal sector. What convinced you to come back and work for another law firm? Oh, look, uh, I guess in, in uh, a couple of words, Danny Gilbert, um, coming back into the law after spending 20 years away from it, having dabbled in it uh, when I was young, um, was uh, was sort of, an interesting decision, but it was actually a pretty easy one in the end. So I was working in property and um, and I was enjoying my job there, uh, GPT, great place to work. Uh, and I got a I got a headhunter call and the, the, the question was, would you be interested in being put forward as a COO of a law firm? And my initial reaction was, I thought that sounded pretty boring, but um, they said, come and meet them. They're, they're different. And I met with Danny and he told me the Gilbert and Tobin story and what he was wanting to do and the way he thought about it and uh, how they were a firm that liked to do things differently. And I, 
I got pretty interested in that. And I, um, and, and while sort of going through the interview process, I did a bit of research on, on the law and legal tech and what was happening. And I realized actually it was a much more interesting business uh, than I had remembered it and that I'd thought it was and had a lot more kind of interesting strategic issues going on and, and things happening in the market that uh, kind of caught my attention and, and made me think this could be this could be a really interesting thing to do. So yeah, um, and then Danny was very persuasive once I think he'd got his head around that thought that he, he thought my, I might be good for the business. And he was very persuasive to um, uh, to convince me to to join and and you know it's been wonderful um, being part of GNT and and it was a great decision that I made um, and uh, you know I've loved it ever since but it was um, yeah it was it was interesting to re sort of feel a little bit like returning um, kind of there was some familiarity to what I'd seen a bit of when I was younger um, but things had definitely evolved uh, a lot and it was a very um, a very a very fun time to come back yeah. So you joined GNT as the COO, the Chief Operating right. Officer. What does a COO of a law firm do, and how did that role change over time after you joined? Yeah, so the the COO, COO um, role in a law firm for me uh, was very broad. There are a few different versions of it, as I know from some of my colleagues who do do roles with a similar title, um, but mine was very broad. So I had a very very broad mandate. So Danny Gilbert is the managing partner. Um, was my direct boss and manager. And then I had responsibility for, um, and I still do, I have responsibility for what you would call the, the functions, the business services operations that are outside the, the fee-earning lawyers. So um, finance, HR, IT, knowledge management, office services, marketing all of those functions were would report into me. So um, it was very broad, gave me a lot of uh, um, variety of issues um, and the ability to kind of think across the breadth of those things. Obviously in a, in a law firm, you, um, you've got all the partners to uh, deal with. Each of them have got different needs and different um, views about what they should be getting from those services. So you've got a broad set of stakeholders you've got to work with. So, I did a lot of work early on on what we called a, uh, a futures committee that, that looked at um, how the law, the legal industry was evolving. So I, I guess over time, my role actually sort of expanded to, to, to take on some of that strategic aspect. Um, and I think that's been really rewarding as well. Yeah. So we talked about how you studied law, but never practiced. A lot of the leaders of larger firms, you know, like Minter Allison, were practicing lawyers before taking on their leadership roles. How do you think your career affected your leadership style and the strategy that you helped to set at GNT? Yeah, look, I think um, I think the fact that I had done a career that had a, a variety of, of industries and had seen a lot of different things has been. Um, informative for me. Um, so I obviously with a strong leader in the firm as Danny, who's been in the legal industry for, for so many years and, and led a law firm to such great success. Um, we had a strong understanding of practice that, that, that was there. And then mine was um, a little bit of, well, I'm coming from out, outside this. Um, 
how does this, you know, why does that make sense? Can we do this differently? So I think we had a, I think we've, we've got a good combination of challenge and, um, and understanding of the, of what might be different about law and why laws, why law operates in a certain way, but also a willingness to challenge it. Mm. So that's kind of been the, the balance of, of, of the leadership team that we've had. Um, and that we've, we've tried to maintain through this next succession that we've done. Yeah, that sounds really interesting. I think, um, I guess the tyranny of expertise and uh, familiarity is often like this, um, complacency, you know, or lack of questioning when it comes to, oh, that, you know, this, this thing has always been done this way or, um, everyone else does it this way or what have you, but what you touched on there, I suppose, is, is more along the lines of, um, you know, the challenging thinking from first principles, uh, really asking, asking why, uh, a certain thing is the way it is. And then, um, also leaning on expertise. This episode of file notes is proudly brought to you by VXT. VXT is the legal phone system. It's a cloud-based voice over IP phone system built specifically for law firms. VXT integrates with your practice management system to automatically record file notes and time entries against legal matters after every phone call. It even syncs your contacts so you know who's calling and what they're calling about before you answer the call. Find out more about VXT at vxt.co.nz slash law. Talk us through your big picture strategy versus day-to-day management. You're now the CEO. Yes. Um, and the role of COO and CEO, you need to use this like wide lens, but also look at the small details like staff compensation costs, uh, efficiency, technology, all of these things. How do you jump from one area to another and think about the long-term and short-term kind of thing? Yeah. So, um, you, you do need to make sure you're doing enough of each and, um, you need to, uh, be able to jump between them uh, from a, in a management sense, but also in a in a um, in the kind of an investment sense about where where we where we're putting our money and our resources and how those things link up. I always been sort of quite influenced from my since my McKinsey days on the um, little framework that uh, was developed there related to growth companies, and it's called um, the Three Horizons, and it sort of says that. Um, the best, the best growth businesses um, have a portfolio of initiatives and, and businesses across three horizons. The first being the core business and protecting and defending that core and extending it as, as long as you can. The second horizon being emerging areas that you're building, you're actively building new businesses. And the third being options you're, you're seeding in the future. Um, things that you may or may not become new businesses, but you, you're sort of experimenting with and, and looking into. And you've got to have a good portfolio across those. And in fact, most of the people in most of the organizations will, will be working in Horizon 1 because that's still throwing off uh, you know, the earnings and, the, and the, the value creation of the business. But you can't have everyone there. You have to have some people working at these, these further horizons. So they're not like time. It's not like, oh, we'll do Horizon 1 in the first three years and then in three to five, we'll do two. It's more like you have to have some, some investment now in all three horizons, but knowing that the, the value will come later. And so that kind of is a little bit of a framing. And so um, 
And then in big picture strategy for the firm, we, we think about um, the role that we play. And in many cases, what we um, do is that we are a facilitator and we, and, and we follow where capital flows are going in the economy. Um, that, will, that will dictate where finance is being raised, where um, M&A transactions will take place, uh, where there's um, investments that need to be protected through litigation, technology contracts. So we, we, we look to that. And so, so long term, we, so long term or sort of medium term, it's thinking about how those capital flows might change and how do we make sure that we're best positioned um, to be able to serve clients in those in those areas. Yeah. For the what we've optimized over the last few years um, and that we're very good at and uh, is around our horizon one is sort of the way capital's been flowing. There's been a huge um, growth in private capital over the last you know decade or so um, that you know private equity firms investing in lots of businesses we have been a big part of and, and a, a beneficiary but a service provider to that um, where we work very closely with a lot of those firms um, and there's also been a, a sort of a trend towards um, increasing government scrutiny and regulation of a lot of businesses and we've been part of that as well um, going forward we're thinking about a few of the you know emerging changes to that um, that giving everything away, but like pretty obviously, if you think about it, over the next couple of years, the or next sort of decade, I sorry, I should go out a bit further than that. The big changes you can expect to see in the Australian economy and society generally would be um, the decarbonisation of our energy. Um, if we're going to, as a planet, be serious about meeting the the Paris Accords and limiting um, global warming to one point five or two degrees. If Australia's going to play our part in that, and if every industry is going to play that, our part in that, the amount of capital that's going to have to be invested to decarbonise the way in which our society runs and the way energy is created and used um, will be enormous. And that capital is going to require a lot of projects, a lot of financing, a lot of investment. So um, we're doing a lot of thinking about that, how, how um, we can make sure we're playing a really important role in decarbonisation. And the other one would be digitisation and the next wave of digital transformation. Um, AI is the sort of one aspect of that, but and that's really accelerated over the last year or so. But a lot of Australian businesses have done a first sort of phase of digital transformation, but I think there's still a long way to go. And so we'll see another wave of digitization. So those two big themes are for us in the Horizon 2 world. We need to make sure that we've got um, the capability to serve what's going to happen there. At the same time, and this is probably goes a bit more to your legal operations, the legal operations side and, and the audience that we have, um, we also think about how, in particular, the digitization trend affects our practice and what <clears throat> what the law firm would look like in 10 years' time. and and how the, the actual, not just the sort of what we're working on, but the how we're working on it um, might change over that period. So, um, yeah, we want to position ourselves for those big trends in capital as well as servicing what's happening now, but also make sure that we're, that we're adapting our law firm to, to those realities as well. Yeah, wow, that, that, 
the Three Horizons model. That's super interesting. I haven't heard um, of that approach before, but it's definitely one I'm going to take away and think about and probably use um, in my work. Yeah, there's a couple of good articles on it you can find on the on the web that kind of lay it out a bit, probably a bit better than I did. But it sounded it sounded pretty clear. I have to say, it was it was good. Um, I uh, you know we talked you talked a little bit about how providing legal services might change. Not you know not necessarily what we're working on, but how we're working on mm. it. Um, personally, this uh, I think that in the not too distant future, you know, let's say you know ten to fifteen years. Across a lot of professional services like law, I think we'll see a transition away from this skilled technical legal work, what is today potentially the largest part of the legal profession, toward a situation in a lot of areas where software is doing a significant amount, much more than it is today, um, of the work. And maybe professionals will do will be focused on the actual human interaction. That's obviously like a really different world. It probably sounds crazy to some people, but uh, a few years ago, most experts believed that creative work would be the most challenging area of work for AI. Um, and it turns out it was the easiest. So yeah. um, obviously it's hard to think about, uh, given the rapid pace of technological change, it's hard to think about the future, but if you had to guess at what the legal profession will look like in 10 to 15 years, what would it be? Yeah, it's a, um, obviously it's sort of a really hard question, but also one I think about a lot. So uh, I should at least have some sort of an answer for it. Uh, and we've been thinking about this quite a bit. Um, sort of the early days of my time in, at GNT back in 2015, we were trying to sort of forecast where things would look. And they, look, I think what's, ha what's happening, as you described, <laughs> Going back to base fundamentals, the the industry that we've got now or we've had up until recently is almost, from an economic point of view, the only unit of production has been labour. It's a skilled labour, but it's a it, it's sort of a labour-driven industry, and that's why and that sort of all of the structures of it play out. So we price on the scarcity of labour, i.e., the hourly rate. Um, all of the major firms are largely um, partnerships because the labor is so important that labor has to own it because no other investor would want to own a part of it because all that will happen is labor will just take the returns off them. And that's what we've seen when some law firms have tried to uh, find a way of listing. They try and sell some of their profit to capital and then capital won't buy it because they just know labor will take it off them by asking for more. So that's the paradigm that we've had. But we are moving to a labor plus capital model where capital has value. And um, we're in the early stages of that, but we're starting to see it. And so uh, legal tech companies like yourselves and, and, and many others, and this is another thing that I, you, know, I, you sort of noticed when you came into the industry that I wouldn't have seen from outside is there are some significant amounts of capital, um, i.e. venture money and other investments going into technology um, that will play a role in delivering legal services and will extract some of the return that's currently going to labor. So um, that shift from a, a labor only model to a labor plus capital model has begun. It's in its early days, but I think it will definitely accelerate over the next, um, the next 10 years. 
and increasingly a part of a, a big part of how services are delivered um, will be via <coughs> capital in the form of technology. And there will need to be a return on that capital. And, and that will unlock different ownership models for legal service providers and law firms. It'll unlock different, it'll have to have different pricing models. Um, you know, kind of to give a little example about it, if you sort of, if you go back a few years, if a sort of thorny problem comes in, like, you know, imagine the, the concept of a whole bunch of documents from the other side arrive and they need to be reviewed. Going back five, 10 years, the solution was always labor. Let's throw more and better people at the problem. But now, uh, particularly in a field like e-discovery where, where technology is well developed, you know, it's not that. The first question that's asked when, and it's not 100,000 documents, now it's 10 million or a million. It's always what can, the techno what can we do with the technology first? What technology can we run over this to dedupe it, to prepare it, to predict, to give us a first cut? Um, and then we think about how do we apply some people to it? So it, it's really begun, but I think that sort of um, what's the technology and the human uh, that we can apply to this legal problem will be asked of every legal problem. It's, it's now happening in certain areas, but I think it will be in the future. So lots of implications. The sort of people who work uh, in the company, in the firm, might look different. I, I use the word company there. There may be more companies doing this. Um, there will be uh, different specialties that are um, highly valued as part of the client service delivery. Um, the, the people that we're hiring at the moment, like data scientists and and you know specialists in in AI technology, are now part of our firm. Um, we'll see more of those, and they'll have a, a an important part to play in 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 the firm's future. And then that question of pricing will come. Like at the moment, um, you know, we do still the bulk of our. Uh, revenue would come in on an hourly rate basis. Um, some of that's under, there is some fixed fee and some of that hourly rate is under a, a sort of, a, you know, an estimate that is acts as a cap, but, but generally speaking, that's still the way we price our services because that's the scarcity of resources. But that will have to change. I mean, we have, it's interesting at times we'll have a bill that will go out to clients and there'll be, you know, a certain amount that's there for, document review and for lawyers doing this work and then there'll be a small amount for um, the processing of that data uh, or the storage of that data or for the experts that work on it and you know it's funny funny that 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 line can sometimes be challenged by clients um, yet you know the the labor line is not necessarily the one getting challenged but actually without the technology line you might have a whole lot more labor and so we have to get better at um, making the case for the value of technology and we have to help our clients understand why technology is part of the delivery and and so it's up to us as as the providers to put a value on our service that includes labor and tech um, the sort of open book here's what the labor was and here's what the tech was doesn't necessarily work in this new model so there's some big changes that'll have to take place as this as this evolution unfolds wow so a lot to unpack there sorry <laughs> No, you, you, you've, you've kind of blown up my brain a little bit, but um, I totally agree. I think um, that's a really interesting way of putting the 
the trends that we're seeing uh, and kind of an economics lens, actually, you know, returns to capital versus labor. And it's, of course, we've already seen that in technology and software. And one of the dynamics that plays out in software that doesn't play out as much in other industries uh, due to this like return to capital, this dynamic of the companies involved is um, it's an incredibly unbalanced uh, area of the world uh, when most of the returns of a piece of work go to the few people that invest in it um, yeah. and make these wonderfully rich tech founders. Um, and I suspect that as more of professional services, as you mentioned, um, goes down this route, we might see some of the similar dynamics start to play out. Today, the legal sector, most law firms are really small businesses, like uh, almost all of them are small businesses. Half of all lawyers work in small businesses, small law firms. What's, I guess, what's going to happen to the people that aren't thinking about this and who aren't changing their businesses and thinking about what can I do to um, participate in this change instead of um, getting disrupted by it? Yeah, it, I mean, this is, a, this is a really interesting question and I guess it, it's a societal question overall um, about what the impact of technology and particularly AI type technology will have and, and then sort of within a within a sector in law I think it it's a challenge. I mean one of the one of the things we, we think about as I guess as a as a larger law firm where we've we're trying to embrace this is um, there's a lot of incredible uh, technology tools out there that have been provided by by vendors, by by tech companies and we think that obviously we need to make sure we are a really good customer and user of those so that the best stuff that's off the shelf, you know, that might be a Microsoft Copilot product that's embedded in, in their products. We need to, that's going to be widely available. So it won't be a competitive advantage that you've got it, but you'll need to make it a competitive advantage that your people use it better than every, everyone else's people. Um, same with other more kind of vertical specific legal tech tools. But there is an aspect that sort of is a worry for us is if all we are is a customer, um, that could see a, a huge amount of the value aggregate towards the provider of those tools and that we are merely sort of the customer of them. And so a part of it is do we also need to be able to have some distinctive aspects that we're, where the capital is owned by us as well. Yeah, because um, what is the differentiation as, you know, it's the com correct. commoditization of legal services or traditional legal yeah. services. So how do you actually prevent yourself from becoming a commodity? How do you retain the margins instead of them, you know, being competed to zero? That's right. And, and, and so obviously one aspect is you want to be the best to the extent that labor is required to turn the technology into an output. And I think it's for, for, for quite some time, it still will be. I mean, there may be aspects of, um, 
the legal industry where the input of labor will be quite minimal. And you can imagine there might be a future where um, someone could get some quite basic advice entirely from a from an AI tool via the internet by just paying a subscription fee mm -hmm. or a one-off fee. So you've almost got very little labor involved at all. Um, but I think for the for the higher end, there'll still be a, a, a significant portion where labor will, you know, skilled people will need to interpret what the technology is doing and, and manage that back and, and the output will be the product of both. And so you want to have the, the yeah. best skilled people doing the best work there and, and getting the best return for themselves, but hopefully not paying away a lot of that return to the tech provider. Yeah, yeah. I should I should clarify, this is kind of the future that we are trying to build. Um, yes, and... yes, I can speak, yeah. <laughs> and... yeah. That's right. And you're one of those tech providers and you, and, and you should do, you know, you, the tech providers should do the absolute best, to deliver the best possible product they can. And they should be rewarded for that. And there's no scale. I mean, we don't want every law firm going and developing each piece of tech because that will be inefficient. But, but so we, so the first thing we have to do is make sure to the extent that, that skilled, skilled people coming together and packaging it up is value creating for the client. We need to be the best at that. Yeah. I still think we ought to, we ought to, as, as law firms, we ought to think about not just being a customer to the tech, but how do we do something a bit more with it? Whether that's a bit of customization on top and a bit of configuration, or whether it's having our own version of certain tasks that are very bespoke to our firm where we're distinctive, but having a bit of a stake in the capital as well as the, the labor component, I think will be important for long-term sustainability. There's a lot of things that are going to stand in the way of that future. Um, of course, you know, regulation is a big one, right? You know, I, I couldn't today uh, use software to provide legal advice. So in most jurisdictions, it'd be, it'd be against the law. There's a lot of similar challenges like that, for instance, with self-driving uh, cars. You know, we are, mm. you know, today you, you need a license to drive a vehicle in most jurisdictions and you know, a piece of software generally won't, uh, won't be able to go through that process. We talked, there are two, a few questions I'd love to ask kind of continuing on this storyline. Um, one is, uh, you touched on, um, we're talking about innovation. You touched on investing in innovation. Um, Legal Vision has been one of the fastest yes. growing law firms in Australasia well known for being massively innovative, um, incorporating some of these areas of other industries like software to, to change the way legal services are completed and delivered. Um, you're on the board. How did that relationship yep. start just quickly? So it started um, you know, pretty early in my time at GNT when we um, were looking at what was going on in the industry and looking at uh, disruption and the way it was working and um, that we expected a bit in the sort of Clayton Christensen um, uh, crave destruction uh, approach to disruption that, that people would start doing the basics uh, and do them differently and then would move up the stack and um, a couple of our partners had um, gone to university with the founder of uh, Legal Vision, Lachlan McKnight, and had introduced us. And it was very interesting the way they were doing it. They were um, looking to apply kind of the principles of a tech startup to the way in which you deliver legal services and to 
uh, productize those services, um, deliver them to the clients in a, in a fixed fee way in a very efficient manner, but also got very professional on the front end of, um, of what they do. So, so one of the things that Legal Vision prides itself on doing the legal work very well um, at a, again, going back to that old GNT kind of philosophy, at a very, at a prompt and less expensive way than the large firms. So getting that right, but actually they're also very distinctive on acquiring the customers versus um, kind of a law firms that might be operating in their market that are subscale or don't have the sophistication around online marketing and client care and, and conversion, etc. So they're very good at, at bringing clients in and they're very good at servicing them. And you know, we were just impressed by that. Um, we thought that this is a business that could potentially uh, kind of eventually uh, at some point in growth, it could be disruptive at a part of the market for us or particularly disruptive at the mid-tier to the mid-tier law firms that sit kind of below where we sit. Um, and we thought that would be a good thing to have happen. So we decided to invest. Um, you know, we kind of went through that make or buy thing thinking, oh, well, you know, should we have a separate, separate brand that goes at this slightly different market and does it in a different way? And then just realized that the work that Legal Vision had done and the progress they'd been through, but also the fact that it was a startup with a founder mentality. It had, you know, the founder um, fully in, engaged their kind of life savings and, and they, they put that all in on the business and um, we should back that. So we're, we've got a minority stake in Legal Vision. We um, very proud of what they've achieved. It's been a few pivots along the way. It's now very much a subscription business. So it gives, you know, a, a fixed subscription, giving people access to legal services. So I think um, it's, it's good to see the, the disruption. We thought at a point in time that there'd be more opportunities for us to work together on enterprise type clients, where say G&T might do one part of the work and Legal Vision would do a, a sort of more, more of the routine and high volume aspects of it. We haven't done as much of that. It, I think from Legal Vision's point of view, um, it's a much more investable and interesting proposition to build up their subscriber base rather than periodic episodic events with, with enterprise clients. So um, that, that SME base um, has been a really strong aspect for them. And so that's been where their focus has been. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. There are probably a lot of lessons um, from Legal Vision around... Um, where maybe because of the productization, because of the approach that they've taken for maybe where is AI going to have the largest effect in terms of the actual kinds of legal work that, that might, um, that it might uh, jump into and, and help out with. And we talked before about the high level trends, you know, that might, might happen, I suppose, over the 10 years, 15 years and so on. But what do you see as the few near future tasks that AI is going to affect um, from an operational perspective in law firms like Gilbert and Tobin? Yeah, so um, the uh, way in which we do um, sort of data extraction from things, I think there's a huge uh, element of that that could be, um, could be, uh, changed by AI. So kind of going through large databases of documents and the like and extracting key terms and all of that. I think AI is very well suited for that. Um, 
I think some aspects of legal research, obviously. Um, and, uh, you know, in the, we're also looking at how it can do things related to um, uh, document automation, where the automation kind of approaches at the moment are very, um, you know, if this, then that kind of uh, very deductive structure. You know, they take a lot of coding of very sort of deep structures that I think AI can cut through and speed all of that up. So they're kind of immediate areas. And then I think, um, you know, I just, I think sort of speeding up the way in which we can do um, bringing people up to speed, summarization of documents, all of that, that they're sort of areas we're looking at quite a bit. Um, We ran a, we ran an AI bounty uh, competition um, amongst our people um, a little while, a few months ago, where we sort of said, like, use some of the, the, AI tools, don't put client data in there, but try them out, see what you think and come up with some ideas. And, you know, our lawyers came up with some terrific ideas around that. Um, And they ranged from, it wasn't just our lawyers, it was all of our people because there was a lot of really good ideas in marketing um, as well. So I think, um, you know, given there's, there's still, like you said, there are some challenges and we need to get some things sorted out about the extent to which um, actual sort of confidential client data can be used in these things. Um, we may start to see what will happen is it'll happen around the edge of it in the business of law aspects um, where we're not using, where we're using more public or firm data rather than conf- rather than client data is where I think some of the first types of things that we'll see are. But ultimately, I think it'll be very helpful in drafting of documents, um, being able to prompt clauses into a into a precedent and that type of type of activity that'll take a little bit longer to get to get right but i think that's going to be another near-term opportunity yeah awesome um thanks so much sam uh this has been a really interesting conversation um i do have a few quick fire questions to to ask um uh i'd love it if you just you know give me the first thing that comes to mind um as i jump through these okay Let's go. What do others not know that you know to be true? That uh, all of us are just uh, trying to get through. What do people not understand about law that you wish they did? Maybe it's something I don't understand. (laughs) Um, I guess that it's not like what it's like on TV shows. It's not suits. What single element would you want to change about the legal industry today? I think we might get, we might have got there, but uh, clearly having uniform laws across the whole country would make sense for the way in which legal pro- profession works. Final one from me. What's the most painful lesson you've learned that you're pleased to have learned? There's no one else kind of uh, telling you to do things. You make your own choices. Yeah, awesome. Thanks so much. That was, that was great. That was so cool. Thanks, Luke. That was good fun. 